Welcome to episode 14 of Fringe with Benefits. I'm your host, Stacy. I'm happy to be here. I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. I hope your week's gone really great. Mine hasn't so much, but we'll get into that. Let's bust out some business. Follow me on all my socials. Follow the the show's page on Facebook and Twitter. It's uh, at Stacy Fringe on Twitter and Fringe with Benefits Podcast on Facebook. Don't forget to follow my fan pages and Inward Survival's page. Go over to www.inwardsurvival.com. Look for ways to donate. Otherwise, you can also donate to the show. If you are interested, go to the Anchor homepage for the show and check out how to support the show. And I think that's it for business. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Okay, when I said my week wasn't going so great, I'm being totally, totally honest with you. I've had some serious hiccups this last year in my professional life, in my personal life, in the dynamics in my family, uh, lots of crazy stuff. In fact, a lot of crazy stuff since my dad passed away in 2016. So get this, my dad ended up coming down with stage four cancer in between my two Naked and Afraid episodes in which he died uh, suddenly after succumbing to his cancer. Like by the time he started treatment, it was already so far gone that um, it would have been a miracle if he'd survived, but he didn't. And he died about two weeks before I was set to get on a plane to go to Africa. And so I ended up mourning his death out there amongst, you know, all these people I had never met before and enduring some insane challenge in which, I mean, you guys know, I lived out there naked for 40 days with a bunch of strangers and it was hardcore. But basically I didn't really get any of that like normal life reflective time missing a person that was very integral in your life and just wanted to share that with you guys because I think I'm still kind of dealing with that which I'm sure I am because those things stick with you for a while so here we are for for almost five years later is it four years and things are nuts um crazy so you know I really wanted to start the with the accountability segment to apologize for screwing up and missing the guest segment in last episode. I I just totally like biffed it and didn't even think about it. And I was like, oh, the episode's done. Well, it was done and it's not a big deal. It's not like I'm going to go back and insert something, but it just really shows where my head was at last week. I was just scrambling to get the podcast done and to the point where it wasn't it wasn't fun it wasn't this hobby that I had created for myself last week it became a chore so we're not gonna do that this week are we Stacy no we're not Stacy okay so yeah I forgot the guest segment and it's been a tough year on everybody especially me because I'm the center of the world no I'm just kidding no it's been a tough year and sometimes I think I'm losing my mind but I really don't think that I'm alone in this. I really think that other people are feeling the exact same way. So shout out if you're feeling bad, but you don't want to tell people you're feeling bad because you don't want to make other people feel bad. That's usually the cycle, right? Otherwise, that's all I got for you for this accountability segment. I haven't received any hate mail. I haven't received any discontent. It's been really refreshing and really nice to be able to come on here say what I got to say, talk about what I want to talk about, and not have to listen to people's bullshit. You know, there's a lot of arguing online. There's a lot of people that put their two cents in, or they give advice where it's not warranted. And this feels more like the space I need to be in in order to express myself in a more productive manner. So here I am doing that. Okay, what I want to talk about on Stacy's socials this week is super important to me. None of that drama business. We can do that later. 
It's a article by Science Alert, and it's totally fresh. It is titled, Daycares in Finland Build a Forest Floor and It Changes Children's Immune Systems. So they're saying that these scientists got together, got a bunch of little kids together, which is kind of scary, but <laughs> they built a forest floor. And they, these Finland um, daycare workers, they rolled out a lawn, planted a forest, um, including like some blueberries and some other crops in planter boxes and had them go out and play in it for certain amounts of time throughout the week over a course of time. Let's see if we can get the the amount. So we've got um, three, four, five years old at this daycare in Finland, and it showed in their blood that there was an increased T cells and other important immune blockers. And that happened within like 28 days. It happened that fast. Quote, we also found that intestinal microbiota of children who received greenery was similar to the intestinal microbiota of children visiting the forest every day, says environmental scientist Maria Rosland from the University of Helsinki. So there's prior research that supports this. It says that exposure to green space is somehow linked to a well-functioning immune system, but it's not clear whether that relationship is causal or not. This experiment was the first to explicitly manipulate a child's urban environment and then test for changes in their microbiome system. So you know that they probably had to take um, samples from their excrement to, to, to measure the level of, you know, what their microbiome and what their gut flora was made up of, which is absolutely brilliant. Seems like a lot of work, but it sounds like it was a really great idea because it made me think about my teenager who, you know, with this coronavirus thing going on and you're stuck at home and you're stuck doing all your schooling on the computer. And unless you forced your kids to go outside, if they're not naturally inclined to go outside, it's like pulling teeth to get them to go outside and do something, which is it's bad for their immune system to be cooped up in the house all the time. There is this belief, and it is legit, that our environment is rich with these other living things that help build our immunity. This is known as the biodiversity hypothesis. This hypothesis says that a loss of biodiversity in urban areas is partially responsible for a decrease in our immune system. So our immune function, function, function <laughs> our immune function is being lowered by being indoors all the time and not being exposed to the natural world around us. This author writes, the results of this study support the biodiversity hypothesis and the concept that low biodiversity in the modern living environment may lead to uneducated immune system and consequently increase in the prevalence of immune medicated diseases, or I'm sorry, immune mediated diseases. The study compares the environmental microbes found in the yards of 10 different urban daycares looking after a total of 75 kids. So that was their experimental design, ages three to five. And some of these daycares contain like standard daycare um, play areas with concrete and gravel. And some took their kids out for nature time, and, but four had their yards updated with grass and forest undergrowth. Over the course of the 28 days, these kids were allowed to play in this, their backyard five times a week. And so they tested the microbiota of their skin and gut before and after trial, the trial, and they found improved results compared to the first group of kids that played in regular daycares with less greenery. Even the short duration of the study, this article says, that found microbes on the skin and guts of children who regularly played in green spaces had increased diversity, which is tied to an overall healthier immune system. So there's this microbe called gamma proteobacteria, and it appears in the... To boosts the skin's immune defense, as well as increase helpful immune secretions in the blood, reducing the content of something called interleukin-17A, which is connected to immune-transmitted diseases. So this supports the assumption that nature prevents immunal disorders, right? Now, also, the, the results aren't conclusive. They need to be verified among other larger studies around the world. But this could increase more green spaces in our area. And it's not only good for their immune system, it's good for their eyesight, it's good for mental health, and it shows us that it's linked to structural changes in the brains of kids, as well as adults. We might want to throw that in. The article also says that rural children tend to have fewer cases of asthma and allergies, and 
there is available literature on the link between green spaces and immune disorders, but it's inconsistent. So these people are asking that we would we would test this and we would implement this into our lives and see what kind of effect it could have on our children. And uh, also, they said to stay up to date on that tetanus vac- vaccination, which I agree with that for sure. It is also good for the environment to get our kids outdoors because then they feel a, a natural stewardship to protect the world that gives them so much. I thought this was a very refreshing break from what I normally see on Stacy's socials. And I'm really grateful to be able to implement the knowledge in this article in my own life, especially this week, by making my own kid go outside and play with the dogs, go look at all the amazing caterpillars that are everywhere right now, and experience the wildlife that's out there because we're very lucky to be in an area in which it's so beautiful and so lush. What's really weird about this one is that this whole lockdown, they want everybody to stay inside and they want everybody to cover their mouths. But all of science and all interaction with the natural world around us says that we need to be exposed to certain microbes in order for our immune system to grow, in order for our immune system to adapt. This whole, you know, sanitizing your hands every five minutes, it's not good. It kills off microbiota that are helpful to us, that actually help protect us. So let's remember that, folks, because... This is a really weird situation that we're in, that we have science backing up that it's good for us to be outside. It's good for us to be with each other. But now we have alternate views that it's not, that we should be afraid to be outside and around each other and to touch things and to get dirty. Just food for thought. Let's move into what we got going on for our viral video. This week's Viral Corner has this really wonderful little video about these guys who get revenge on this woman who's putting her trash in their trash bins. So it seems like it's not the super like, funniest video I could talk about, but it's, it's about something that I actually really, really care about. And that's one thing is like litter or thievery really drives me up a wall. So in this video... It's, it's titled, Irishmen Get Revenge on Woman Dumping Rubbish. So they've got CCTV outside their house, and they see this woman dumping her trash in their dumpster. And they're pissed. They're like, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do about this? We need to make sure that she knows that she's, one, breaking the law, and two, it's absolutely rude. And so what they do is they get the video already, and they're going to try to find out who she was. Because guess what? She just left her trash there. So they go through her trash, and they find a letter with her name and address on it. They don't share her personal information because that would be wrong, but they did. Through their investigative work, they were able to locate her, and they took that bag of trash and they put it on top of her car where it was parked, which was brilliant. So the reason why I want to bring this up is I live kind of on a busy road, and people will pull over and they will just dump their trash right out the side of their car or their, their cups from when they had lunch at McDonald's or whatever, just right out, you know, on the, the side of the road. And I also, I used to work for the game department in which I did maintenance at local fishing sites and I would clean up other people's garbage. And you wouldn't believe some of the crap that people not only throw on the side of the road, but they'll pull over to like a, like a little inconspicuous area. I don't know if that's the right word but a little like isolated area and dump things like couches, mattresses, household appliances, you wouldn't believe it. And so how many people out there are actually doing this? And what is going through your mind when you do this? Because other people have to pick that up. It hurts the environment. It makes everything look like shit. So what are you trying to do when you throw trash everywhere else? That's my biggest pet peeve is littering. I'll tell you a story about that later. But to go back to the video, these guys did the right thing. This woman's an idiot, for one, for not shredding her personal information before putting in the trash. But she's also taking advantage of somebody else. And she has to go out of her way to bag up her trash and drive around town to find a dumpster that she can, you know, she's stealing. She's stealing somebody else's trash service. She's totally inappropriate. Now, some people would say, oh, well, at least she didn't throw it on the side of the road. Wrong. No. Sign up for your own trash service. Trash service pay for your own trash service, and then you would be considerate of other people who have to pay for their own trash service. 
So that's it. The story I wanted to tell you guys was when I did work for the game department, I would drive up and down this section of river and I would survey anglers who were fishing steelhead. And one time this guy was driving very erratically in front of me, very slow, drive, you know, um, doing a lot of swerving. And he threw a, a beer can out the window and I was just pissed. And we had a radio. There was no cell service, but we had a radio. So I radioed to the local dispatch for the sheriff's office and I, I gave him his plates, the, the, um, the license plate, and they actually came down and they caught him. And this is like a two-cop town. Like, this is the least populated uh, county in Idaho, if you guys can figure that one out. But the sheriff's department came out and they pulled that guy over. And guess what? He had his wife and his kid in the car and it was his third DUI. Pat on my back, I did the right thing. And I actually ended up getting props from my supervisor and my supervisor's supervisor for going out of my way and making sure that I let law enforcement know that this guy was the scumbag was throwing his trash out the window, but boom, he was drinking and driving with his family in the car. And we all know that that's not a good idea. So I just wanted to make sure that all the litterers out there, think about it. Don't even throw your cigarette butts out the window. Don't throw, you know, your gum wrappers. In fact, you shouldn't even throw your gum out the window. You should dispose of it properly. Same goes for anything. Also something, a tidbit I learned, I used to throw my my apple cores and, you know, my, my food stuffs out the window back in the day. And I had a friend, he's like, you know, that's not a good idea. Um, the game will actually come to the roadway and eat your apple cores, which causes, and you know, the result is more more deer being hit on the road because they come to the road for a food source because they know they can rely on idiots like me who are throwing their apple cores out. And so I stopped doing that. As soon as I was educated on the effects of that really lazy behavior, I stopped doing it. And now I, I need to make sure that everybody else knows. Don't throw your trash out the window. Don't be a jerk. And if you see people doing it, call them out on their shit because it's bad behavior and we shouldn't be putting up with it. That's what I got for viral video this week. I'm sick of littering. I'm sick of people taking advantage of other people. And I'm sick of people stealing from others. Their hard-earned money and services that they pay for. Get your own damn service. That's that for there. Okie dokie. Before we get into this week's weekly topic, which is actually super exciting, and I'm glad that I have decided to talk about this because everybody needs to know about it, we're going to take a quick little segue and talk about the Australian jewel beetle being in decline in the 80s because the males couldn't stop mating or trying to mate with the beer bottles that were on the ground. I'm going to refer you to an article from Australian Geographic about these entomologists that were out in the field and they noticed that these flying male jewel beetles were like hovering a couple meters off of the ground and then they like landed and were trying to mate with these short um, brown beer bottles. They call them stubbies down under. And so they did an experiment. So I guess the females are flightless and so the males will fly around looking for these unsuspecting females and then land on them and try to meet with them, mate with them. Because the shiny brown color of the glass resembles that of the beetle's coloring, plus there's dimpled glass at the base of the bottle and tiny bumps on the beetle's elytra, or hardened four wings, that's what they call them, both reflect light the same way. So the contents of the bottle held no attraction for the males, the article said. In fact, stubbies with beer still inside were left entirely alone, but the bottles of the different shades were left out for the male beetles by the entomologists. They were also ignored. So it was a particular beer bottle. It, um, so it sounds pretty ridiculous, but this behavior has serious effects on the male Australian jewel beetles. These entomologists described how once in the bottles, the males would not stop, stop trying to copulate with them until they were physically displaced in the wild, which means they could unwittingly starve or exhaust themselves to death, the article says. They were absorbed, observed falling off the bottles with heat exhaustion, so they would make themselves like completely vulnerable to to predators in the area and so it's actually a problem for their population. One scientist goes to say in one of the observations a male at the side of the bottle was being attacked by a number of ants which were biting the soft portions of his averted genitalia. A dead male covered with ants was located about an inch away from the same bottle. Stop littering. This goes with our littering 
theme of this episode is improperly disposed of beer bottles. They present a physical and visual hazard to the environment, and it will also cause the beetles to try to mate with them. So throw your trash away and not outside, especially in Australia, anywhere. So let's just get that straight. So I'm glad that I shared that with you because I thought that that was super fascinating. And we're going to move into our weekly topic, which we're going to talk about the missing 411. And if you are a friend of mine, then you know that this is an issue that I think about and I keep up on because there's so many missing people that go, um, that just vanish in our wildlife areas and our national parks. So The Missing 411 is a series of books written by a retired former detective, sorry, a retired police detective named David Paulettis. He's now this investigator and writer known from, for his these self-published books. And he wrote a book prior to these books about the reality of Bigfoot. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about maybe some people may not believe him because of the whole Bigfoot thing, or they may, may not take him as serious because he's written books on Bigfoot. He has single-handedly documented the disappearance of people in national parks and elsewhere. He attributes mysterious and unspecified causes to these disappearances, so he does not choose, he doesn't give his opinion. He basically just gives the facts. He gives the data for everybody to where we we can decide. And he, you know, draws some parallels. He he shows that there are some coincidences that or commonalities in between these cases. So let's talk a little bit about David Poletti's history. So I guess um, he says that he received his undergrad and graduate degrees from the University of San Francisco. In 1977, he began a 20-year career in law enforcement. He worked for the San Jose Police Department, and he was patrol division on the SWAT team. And he seems like a really nice guy. I follow his YouTube channel. I listen, watch all of his movies. I watch all of his um, YouTube content. And he seems to have a really big heart and he really wants to figure out what is going on. So he leaves the police force and he writes a book on or writes several books on the topic of Bigfoot as well as the, the missing 411 phenomenon. He self-published these two Bigfoot-related books and created this research group called the North American Bigfoot Search, which he serves as the director. And this is all stuff I did not know, so this is cool, um, because we all know that I I love Bigfoot. And you can tie the missing 411 into this whole Bigfoot phenomenon, because it could be one of the reasons why these people are just, like, falling off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. But let's focus on the missing 411. So after his Bigfoot books, he uh, he self-published um, several books. I think there's four or five, if not more, and two documentary films documenting unsolved cases of people that had gone missing in national parks and elsewhere. According to Paulettis, his work on this subject began when he was doing research on a national park, and an off-duty park ranger, which he talks to us about this story, found him and expressed concern. Like, I think this guy literally came to his motel room and, like, was like, dude, something's going on. And I, I can't, you know, there's nobody for me to tell about this, but there's some weird, bizarre stuff happening. He said that there was questionable nature of some of the missing person cases which occurred in the parks. The ranger knew Pauletti's background and asked him to research the issue. Of course, Pauletti says yes and asserts that he uncovered multiple lines of evidence suggesting negligence on the part of the park service in failing to locate... The missing people and he broadened his investigation to include missing people from across the world so he has gone international and especially like in canada there's a lot of stuff happening up there lots of worldwide disappearances and they they defy logical and conventional explanations looks like oh okay as of 2019 he wrote nine books and according to one of his books called a sobering coincidence he does not yet have a theory on what's causing the disappearances although he indicates the field of suspects is narrowing so that's good. He's kind of, um, he's taking the data that he's collected and he's, I always start with Wikipedia. And as I'm going through the history on David Paletti's, we talk about, um, or they talk about Kyle Pollock, who's a data scientist and host of Data Skeptic Podcast, documenting his analysis of Paletti's claims, which is the article we are going to get to this because it is one of the things I pulled in my research. And he gives an um his own personal analysis, and he's also a member of the Monterey County Skeptics. He concluded that the allegedly unusual disappearances represent nothing unusual at all, 
and are instead best explained by non-mysterious causes such as falling or sudden health crises leading to a lone person becoming immobilized off trail, drowning, bear or other animal, attack, environmental exposure, or even deliberate disappearance. After analyzing the data, Pollock concluded that these cases are not, quote, outside the frequency that one would expect or that there's anything unexplainable that I was able to identify, end quote. This presentation was discussed in a February 2017 article. We will go over that. Of course, Pauletti's gives no reason for these disappearances, and this is what the skeptic says, but he finds odd correlations, which is true. Pauletti says that there are correlations between these people's names, between the time of year, the time of day. He, like, he breaks it down. Um, there's also commonalities of their, of, you know, what they do for a living, their level of intellect, it's just odd, these coincidences. And if like, and if you know anything, coincidences, those are kind of clues into hacking the matrix, or at least that's kind of what I've figured, <laughs> but I could be nuts. So for example, this is the example he gives that two women missing in different years both had names starting with an A with three letters, Amy and Anne. Pollock concluded in his analysis, quote, I've exhausted my exploration for anything genuinely unusual. After careful review to me, not a single case stands out, nor do the frequencies involved seem outside of outside expectations, end quote. And that's the end of the wiki information, which is, it's so typical that you take somebody who's actually trying to expose this strange phenomenon and, you know, Wikipedia likes to like, well, you know, this is a, the rebuttal this is his critics, and this is what they say. There are odd correlations. I've read two of the books. I have not read all of them yet. I follow him, so I, I get to see all the new cases and all the odd similarities, and we're going to get into some of those similarities. But it's so disheartening to see, you know, such a simple rebuttal. And, you know, why why are we going to take this skeptic's word for it? If we, if we read the books and you see that there are certain cases in which there are small children that are ending up 10 miles away the next day. Some of them are found alive, some of them are never found. And can a two-year-old really scale a couple ridge lines and get 10 miles away in a certain amount of time? Or they're, they're found in really odd situations like in the middle of a swamp and their clothes are still dry or their, sh or their shoes are untouched or just the weirdest shit, guys. Like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And then there's other cases in which these people, you know, they've been searched for for weeks. And that, that ground has been covered by search and rescue. And then, you know, they're found just right on trail or, or in an area in which they had been searched previous times. Or, you know, certain circumstances in which, you know, some of their clothes are found, but their bodies never found. It's just the, the craziest stuff. There's this article that I want to talk about, and it's in my favorite magazine, Outside Magazine. It's titled, it's a really long article, I'm only going to talk about little aspects of it. How 1,600 People Went Missing from Our Public Lands Without a Trace by John Billman, a search and rescue section. So he does a really great job on this article. I will link it in the show notes. He's basically talking about... This kid named Joe Keller, he was 19 in 2015, and he was in Caneos County, and he'd been traveling, just a young kid, and he was a uh, endurance runner, competitive runner, and, uh, you know, um, very experienced trail runner, and he had a friend, Colin, that was running with him, who had a GPS watch, and they did this, you know, very wide open trail in this area. It's on the Conejos River, and it's on the um, the outskirts of the Rio Grande National Forest, off of Forest Road 250. And there's a really nice aerial map of the forest road that they were on, where the ranch was, where they were supposed to be back, and their trail, where they, the, the loop that they did. So this kid goes missing. They started looking for him around 7.30 at night after dinner when he didn't show up because they separated during the run. Around 9... 30 p.m. There were approximately 35 searchers and 10 p.m. is when they called the sheriff because he still wasn't back. He wasn't dressed for the evening. He had only been wearing a pair of running shorts. Everybody was very concerned. And then the next day, the, um, the official search began at 6 a.m. During the first week, they had 15 dogs out there, 200 people. They had an airplane. 
And then on July 6, 2016, they found his body. So like a whole year later, this guy who was a former Steelman, Steelers lineman, John Renstra, was out there. He's like a search and rescue hobbyist. And this case is really well known, obviously. And so he went out there and gave it a go. And he found this kid like way up on this ridge. So you're going to have to read the article if you're super interested. It was just, it was really odd. Um, and in this article, he goes over several cases. In fact, we're not going to go over because there's too many. I just, I wanted to read this particular part because he does this, the guy that's writing this article, he meets with David Paletti's and this is what he had to say about it. Paletti's an ex-cop from San Jose, California is the founder of the North American Bigfoot search. His obsession shifted from Sasquatch to missing persons when he says he was visited at his motel near an unnamed national park by two out of uniform rangers who claimed that something strange was going on with the number of people missing in America's national parks. He's self-published six volumes in his popular Missing 411 series and most recently Missing 411 Hunters, Unexplained Disappearances. Paletti's expects Missing 411, the movie, a documentary co-directed by his son, Ben, and featuring Survivor Man, Les Stroud, to be released this year. Last May, I met him at the pizza joint in downtown Golden. Oh, I know where that is. And so he says that Paletti's is Jim Fit, which he totally is. He does a lot of hiking. So this is what, so this is what David Paletti said. This is a quote. I don't put any theories in the books. I just connect facts. Unique factors of disappearances. He lists such recurring characteristics as dogs unable to track sense, the time, late afternoon is a popular window to vanish, and that many victims are found with clothing and footwear removed. Bodies are also discovered in previously searched areas with odd frequencies, sometimes right along the trail. Children's and remains are usually found improbable distances from the, the point last seen in improbable terrain. That's the important part. So he, the writer goes on to say it's tempting to dismiss Paletti's as a crypto cook. Kook. Sorry, guys. All right. So he says it's tempting to dismiss Paletti's as a crypto kook, and some search and rescue professionals do, but his books are extensively researched on a large map of North America in his office wall. He's identified 59 clusters of people missing on federal wildlands in the U.S. and southern Canada. To qualify as a cluster, there must be at least four cases, according to his pins, and you want to watch your step in Yosemite, Crater Lake, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and Rocky Mountain National Parks. But then it would seem you would want to catch your step everywhere, watch your step everywhere in the wild. The map resembles a game of pin in, on the tail on the donkey at an amphitheater. <laughs> he says the ma- the map resembles a game of pin the tail on the donkey at an amphetamine fueled birthday party. <laughs> Paletti's has spent hundreds of hours writing letters and Freedom of Information Act requests in an attempt to break through National Park Service red tape believes the park service in particular knows exactly how many people are missing but won't release the information for fear that the sheer numbers and the ways in which people went missing would shock the public so badly that visitor numbers would go down okay so that's where the conspiracy number or the conspiracy theory comes in that's why we're suspicious Paletti's brought along a missing persons activist named Heidi Streetman. This is the first I've heard of her. She's also an affiliate faculty member at Denver's Regis University who teaches research methods She read the series, and she became frustrated that there was no searchable database for families of the disappeared in 2014. She floated a petition titled, Make the Department of the Interior Accountable for Persons Missing in Our National Parks and Forests. It is now over 7,000 signers. I wonder what the signage goal is right now. It says the goal was at 10,000, but I wonder what it's at now and whether or not they've wrapped that up. There's obviously a lot of numbers. This particular kid... He was found on a ridge that was way out where he wouldn't have been running in in an area. I guess he was he wasn't so fond of heights, and that his family said they would never have gone up there. But he's got he um, the autopsy results were from head trauma, so it was like the result of a fall, or maybe he was thrown, or maybe who knows at this point. But it's weird, guys. And how come these search dogs that are usually right on the money? How come they don't? find these bodies in time. I don't understand it. I really don't. To wrap that up with the Joe Keller story, what's really important is if you put yourself in the position of these families or the people that are out on a run with, say you're out on a run with your friends and, you know, it's remote, 
or you're on a hike with your family and you there's a point of separation you go one way the other person goes the other way and then they just never come back or you never see them again or they don't show up at the meetup spot and you never know what happened to them and then if you do by chance find their body in some strange circumstance you're gonna you're gonna ponder on this for the rest of your days it's it's one of those things that it's heartbreaking for these people because they'll never know what happened to their loved one. I guess when they, they pass on into the next dimensional plane, then they would. It's a great article. You guys should definitely go check it out. It will explain a lot of what goes into searching for somebody in the wild. Next, I want to talk about there is an article by Kyle Pollock, and it's dated 2017. And it's called An Investigation of the Missing 411 Conspiracy. In his Missing 411 series of books, author David Pilates claims that people are going missing from the U.S. national parks under unusual circumstances and the National Park Service is obstructing attempts to investigate. What are the facts? So this particular source, they didn't actually allow me to see the article. I had to connect with my public library and it wouldn't recognize my library. But I was able to find the original article, which is at skepticalinquirer.org, which is the original publication for this author, and he gives all of it. And we're going to highlight some of those things. So as I'm reading this one, it's pretty interesting because I want to make sure that you guys get this. Okay, so he's this investigator for the Skeptical Inquirer has discovered that Pauletti's has classified over 1,440 missing persons. Now, we know that that number is a lot bigger because this was written a few years back, three years ago to be exact, and there are several missing people. Three people went missing in Rainier over the summer, I think it was. Maybe we'll do that on another episode, but why the hell did three people go missing in Mount Rainier over this year? And that's not it. People are going missing over in Canada, People are going missing in other national parks, and the news is not covering it. So this guy goes on to say that Pauletti's is associated with paranormal shows and has remained evasive as far as probably, he doesn't say, but probably to be interviewed. And I'm kind of wondering why. And so this next sentence, I'm going to quote this guy. He says, he sees his role as an investigator pointing to a problem, not a cause, end quote. I think that that is a perfect statement. Then he follows it up with this. Alien abduction, ghost involvement, fairy kidnappers, and trans-dimensional chupacabra can all be swapped in and out as possible explanations for this apparent mystery. The topic seems to be constructed with intentional ambiguity, promoting, promoting any non-scientific idea to fill in as a possible explanation. End quote. Well, that's simply just not true. Not true at all. There are many professional sets of researchers that are studying this problem and cataloging data, such as Pauletti's himself, and they're the only people that are actually giving a rat's ass, excuse my French, to actually do something. So good on them for at least collecting the data so we can try to identify a problem and at least warn people so they can take precautions so they don't just drop off the face of the earth. Now, there, there are, of course, scientific explanations for some of these things. Okay, so people say maybe they're time slips or they're a portal to another dimension, dimension or they're being picked up by a Bigfoot or the government's taking them or the aliens are taking them. Like, who freaking knows? Some of those are a little more likely because of what we know now in quantum physics and quantum mechanics. We cannot rule out anything according to what our modern-day physicists are saying. Guy goes on to say that, could it, quote, could it be that an underfunded and understaffed National Park Service and related police departments lack the tools and ingenuity to determine that an unidentified serial killer is at work in the parks, end quote, or actually, let's continue. This is not outside the realm of possibility. Although Pilates has never put this particular claim forward, there is a non-trivial possibility. He has in inadvertently produced a data set, set a data set from which this conclusion could emerge. Of course, it does seem that Pilates leans towards more supernatural conclusions. Okay, for one, that's not true because Pilates has talked numerous times to the people that follow him and are trying to get information 
that he has contacted the National Park Service. And maybe maybe there might be an element of underfunding and understaff, but some of these people have been just straight up rude to him and won't let him exercise his Freedom of Information Act. Or they're just not compiling the data, which makes them irresponsible for that property. If people are going missing on on public lands and we don't have the people in the position to make sure that that's not followed up on and not tracked properly, that's totally unscientific and totally irresponsible. And you're not being very accountable to your fellow human if you're not doing those things. So I don't care how understaffed or underfunded, what kind of people are in there that don't recognize this problem. And I think that's why so many people are coming forward. This guy is using Hyman's categorical imperative, which is what he says is do not try to explain something until you are sure there is something to be explained. So that's totally smart. Best place to start is basically what he says. And so he used a random number generator to select several pages from missing 411 to conduct a detailed verification. And so... He said that Pilates is not making these disappearances up, so he found that his his data set is legit. He goes on to say that one case involved a hunter who had never returned from his hunt. His car was found, but his body was never recovered. The second case involved a hiker. Okay, we're not going to go through that because I already know there's already... Okay, here's one. In another case, two stranded parents with a known drug problem had a car breakdown during a snowstorm. Pilates reports the parents' remains were found scattered... I was unable to confirm the scattering, but I was able to confirm their infant child was never located. That, that one's interesting. I wonder which book that one is in because I want to, I want to read that one. I don't remember that one. Um, so he goes on to say that he found a lot of these cases to be fairly mundane until he arrives at the hiker's disappearance. He says, following a deadpan factual reporting of the details, Pauletti's quotes a local person saying cryptically that, according to local legend, beings called Lemurians lived underneath Mount Shasta. Maybe the Lemurians got Carl, end quote. Okay, so the fact that he pulled that out, eyewitness reports, or when people tell us something from the local area in which we're investigating, we need to write that down word for word and report it. It's called being a good scientist. Obviously, this this author is extremely fueled with bias, and he, and but you know, to to be fair, he is writing for the Skeptical Inquirer, so he's trying to get down to the nitty gritty of the situation and see what it is. So let's. I got a little lost in this article, but I'm gonna wrap this up because um, he basically th- this author is actually the one that Wikipedia quoted. And as I got to the end of the article, basically he says that he's exhausted his exploration for anything genuinely unusual. And he gives many reasons. He says that the removal of the clothing, he gives very few reasons actually. The removal of the clothing is um, a, a sign of hypothermia, which, may, which could be true, but if they were close to hypothermia, you would find their body nearby. And he says that David Pilates uses an imprecise criteria imprecise criteria. Well, let me tell you what some of these criteria are. We've got, um, it's usually by a body of water in which somebody goes missing. There are usually boulders. There's usually bad weather soon after that will impede the search. And some of them are experienced hunters and hikers. Some of these people are extremely intelligent. Some of these people are physically challenged. I guess not having a set way of measuring but in all these cases it's always has those things so i'm so he's using a pretty precise criteria i would imagine and so he's being david paletti's is being criticized for not letting anybody else decide which belongs in the missing 411 or not but i don't i don't know how that's really relevant this guy he says that there's no room for unusual observations under the frequency and he says that of all the disappearances in a year are a suspicious number of them coming from national parks. In truth, that's a difficult statistic to analyze. People do disappear, and any disappeared person must have a last known location. However, that does not make every location on the planet equally probable for generating a missing person. Well, duh. And he looked into this briefly and found, if anything, you're less likely to disappear from a national park than from a major city. Okay, if you looked into a brief, cite your source, dude. I want to know, like, what, what did you look into? So this guy is supposedly a, a statistician, and he continues to criticize Pauletti, saying that 
he um, was complaining about the media and the media not reporting properly. And he said that his FOIA requests, he says he has confirmed that he made many Freedom of Information Act requests and some were denied. Apparently to learn more, I would need to initiate a Freedom of Information request for a list of the FOIA requests Pauletti's made. You can do that. I don't think I have much to learn, however. Pauletti's doesn't seem to lie about details, but with multiple books under his belt, satisfying his request might indeed be costly. If the MPS had been dismissive or evasive, that's not proof of anything mysterious. Yes, it is. If the NPS, who works for the American people, has been dismissive and evasive to our request for information and our demand for them to figure out the infrastructure to make sure that it's a safer place for people to be, and they're recording the number of missing people that go missing in their parks. And like we have this thing called the internet now that we can, as a collective, put that in the same data set so it can be accessible to anyone. Anywho, <laughs> not a big fan of this article. And I do support David Paletti's when he says that news services sometimes temper the story or don't ask specific questions in regards to the scene. And this um, author, you know, basically saying that accusations of conspiracy or incompetence is a claim made broadly without specific evidence. Well, there's there's loads of evidence of this occurring. You just have to know where to look. And he exhausted his exploration. Too bad, so sad. He, he's grateful for his a visit to Yosemite National Park. So we like this guy's website. Not. And then I can't believe that that is considered an academic article through the other website, gogel.com. I don't know. Let's look at a news article, Cron. Cron 4, K-R-O-N 4, Missing 411 Author Sheds Lights on Mysterious Disappearances. Let me make sure this is recording still. Okay, so this is January 23rd, 2020. I've got ads. Okay, so this, this article opens up to say, a career lawman has turned his forensic skills towards an enduring mystery that has deadly consequences across North America. And so he talks about David Paletti's tracked thousands of missing persons cases, and goes on to say that victims are children whose bodies are later found in seemingly impossible locations. Paletti says, sometimes these kids I write about are found like a two or three year old or found 10 to 15 miles from the point they were last seen, or they were found 5,000 feet higher in elevation than where they disappeared. Paletti says, and as a parent, you'll know my kid wasn't going to make that distance in the amount of time or climb that elevation in this period of time, so it doesn't make sense. And he shares lots of other things in an interview on this website that will be linked, so you can check out Paletti's yourself, because we should be supporting this guy. He's trying to do something for us. Let's go over to canammissing.com. This is David Paletti's site. Go check that out. He talks about a lot of stuff. He gives an overview of each book should go buy don't buy his books anywhere but his website because he likes to keep that going that way and then another really cool resource is a medium blog from words of tomorrow and it's called my crack and explaining missing 411 and i really liked this site uh, martin Renz resney wrote this article in september 2019 and it's a 51 minute read, it says. And I really highly suggest that people go into this one. This guy says he's not gonna be going into depth on any of the individual cases. He's gonna try to use his social science education and research method methodology expertise to try to bring some clarity into how all of the variables in these cases seem connected. So this seems super productive. I love this guy already. <laughs> Because this first couple paragraphs, he basically is like, you know, I'd like to first address all the ad hominem attacks leveled at Dave. <laughs> you know, he gets into, you know, talking about how, you know, he may not be the best scientist or statistician. Does that mean that we should be dismissing the evidence he's bringing forward? And that means, no, absolutely not. He's not putting forward his theories, only the data. So he needs to be defended. And he says that personal attack is a logical fallacy, not a counter argument. If Dave incorrectly interprets some data point or a causal relation, it's an error, not a crime. So that's awesome. I love this guy. And he also says that being associated with Bigfoot research also doesn't disqualify everything you say about anything. So hell yeah, this guy rocks. Then he gets into the profile points. He talks about how his this type of research is not used in social science, not in order to formulate hypotheses. 
He says that Dave's criteria for the sample selection seem completely reasonable and that you have to use this kind of reasoning when you're collecting data for this type of data set. So he goes at it like a social scientist reviewing like a student's thesis. And basically it's the, under the commonality that subjects are never being found. And according to Pilates, every person should be found, especially if they're a small child or they're mentally or physically disabled and presumably unable to travel long distances. And he doesn't question the thoroughness of the searches or the dedication and the skill of the searchers. And that's what's so baffling. These people are good and they know what they're doing. And they usually find people. Another point he brings up is subjects are being found in an unusual position, like face down on the ground, wrong side up in the water for their gender, or with unusual lividity or state of decay for the length of their disappearance. So that's another great point I totally forgot to bring up is sometimes these people would look like they'd been alive for quite some time before they'd actually expired. So what were they doing for like three weeks out in the wood, woods wandering or, you know, a month or I don't know. There's just so many weird things. Sometimes out high amounts of alcohol or GHB were found in the blood of the deceased, but without any clear idea how they were ingested. So what the fuck? That makes, you know, that's one tick against the, maybe the, the government or some kind of shadow government stuff. Oh my God. So why, you know, these people would not have had access to alcohol or GHP. So that's very strange. And this guy says he's, we've got a system, we've got a systemic anomaly, anomaly on which you will keep getting more data, an anomaly that you can try to predict. This one is extremely tragic. He says, if you're convinced that it can't be any of the exotic explanations, then what is any possible explanation? The longer the series of deaths goes on globally, the less likely it is that it's all just a result of someone's bad or good luck. At the very least, it would require a vast, perfect conspiracy, and that's never a good go-to explanation. It's basically just as magic as teleportation. Not wholly impossible, but an extreme leap nonetheless. I await suggestions. He bullet points, subjects being seen or found in places that are unusual, seemingly too far away from the point where they got lost or places that otherwise shouldn't have been able to get to. That's his another strong profile point. Also, another one is subjects being found in previously searched areas, including areas that were searched many times. Subjects found alive having no memory of the disappearance or giving an account that sounds incorrect, confused, or outright fantastical. Subjects found deceased having no identifiable cause of death or unexplained fever if found alive. That's, that's a big one too. Sometimes they don't know how these people died. They're just dead. Subjects getting quickly separated from the group before disappearing, often the first or last person in line, and sometimes after the person in question says that they're feeling unwell or tired and separates themselves. If you're hiking with a group of people and somebody is like, oh, I want to go up ahead or... Somebody needs, I need to sit down for a minute or I need to go off and pee. Um, I wouldn't let him do it. <laughs> it makes me want to be a hell of a lot more cautious when I'm out there for sure. Another one is subjects missing some or all articles of clothing, especially socks, shoes, or boots. This guy says it's a weird one, which probably makes a good profile point. These things need to be cross-checked carefully with cases where paradoxical undressing could have realistically taken place. Dave, he says that David made some comments over the years that indicate he initially didn't believe that paradoxical undressing is an actual thing that happens, but after he got predictably criticized for it, he appears to understand it better now. Another profile point is subjects forgetting their wallets or phones at home or in the car before leaving either at strange times or remote places or getting missing suddenly while on the phone with the phone being hung up losing power or ending up missing destroyed dry when it should have been wet or unused when there was a signal. Trackers are unable to track these people. That's a huge one. Canines are unable or unwilling to pick up the scent of either a living person or cadavers. What the hell? These dogs are good, right? Sudden spell of bad weather immediately following the disappearance. We said that one. Subjects disappearing with a dog while a dog often returns or is found unharmed. Subjects disappearing in the afternoon. Subjects disappearing while picking berries or mushrooms. Yeah, watch out, all you berry pickers. He's got a whole section in his books about picking berries, people going missing. Unusually high percentage of subjects being male, very young, college age, or old with some kind of apparent or hidden injury or disability or with exceptionally high or low intelligence. 
including specifically academically accomplished people like physicists or physicians and very physically fit people like runners, athletes, or soldiers, or people connected to religion or Germany. Whoa, right? And this guy says he's like, he would love for Dave to release tables with exact percentages. And I think Dave should release his data to this guy because this guy is ready to really look into it. And I think he'd be a great asset to the missing Can-Am missing team. Another profile point is that locations often have devil in their name and tend to be close to water, boulder fields, and large granite formations. Dave talks about this a lot in his Can-Am missing YouTube channel. Another Profile point is strange coincidences occur in connection to some of the cases, typically involving names of the people involved. So that was the thing about, you know, the two names being similar. Or there's one recently he just went over. I'm not sure where these guys are missing, um, but they have very similar last names. And they went missing within a couple weeks of each other or within a certain time frame and it was very recent too it wouldn't even be in the data set originally because it just happened this year i think everybody should go look at that it's pretty awesome i'm glad that that guy went went um came forward and did all the work to to look at that and be on team dave and it's important to a lot of these families i mean how would you feel if it was your two-year-old that disappeared from a campsite you know we have a lot of people to thank because they are willing to get out there and look for our asses and look for our loved ones and dave is trying to get some answers to these families that have have no answers and they want to know what happened and i'm sure they don't want it to happen to anybody else so dave always says to Make sure you carry a beacon locator device, GPS device when you're out there. Keep your phone with you. Don't get separated. Don't go alone. Tell people where you're going. I mean, you can only do so much. If you're going to slip into a portal, you're going to slip into a portal. But you can take some precautions. There are a lot of people out there who have had strange experiences that in which they felt like they were being lured away and they they ran away. They could have freaking disappeared in the woods that day. So get on your Reddit, go check that out. I might try to go find a disappearance in the mailbag. Send us your mail. Send us your weird stories at fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. This week, we have for you... A really crazy, okay, links in the show notes, because I'm going to start doing that now. Okay, so it's from the Reddit thread conspiracy no poll, and the user is Save Jaden Rogers. And it's titled, The Veil is Thin in Some Places. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. He basically gives you an overview of the missing 411 and the cluster map. Shows a picture of the cluster map. And he bullet points some of these missing people and some of the strange um, occurrences. So we are going to go through those. He says, here are a few cases. The case of Stephen Kubaki, who went missing for 15 months, then woke up in a field wearing different clothes. In February of 1978, Stephen, a student at the time learning German, went missing in Michigan, specifically in an area known as the Great Lakes Triangle, which is written about in a book by Jay Gourley, That talks about the disappearances of hundreds of ships, boats, and aircraft. Stephen said he was going to go skiing. They found his skis, his poles, on the beach of Lake Michigan, and footprints on the ice headed leading up to the lake. They flew over it. The footprints appeared to stop. They found his backpack in the same general area. On May 5th, 1979, 15 months later, Stephen walked up to his father's door and said he didn't remember much. He woke up in Pittsfield, 40 miles from his father's house, lying in a meadow wearing clothes that weren't his. He had a small satchel beside him with maps that weren't his, where he woke up was set, he was 700 miles from Lake Michigan. What the hell? Reporters asked him if he would talk to someone. He said he didn't need to because he didn't have any psychological problems. After 1983, Stephen got a master's in linguistics and a PhD in clinical psychology. Pauletti's got in touch with him, but Steve did not respond to his calls or emails. Interesting. Another case. Dr. James Jim McGrogan, 39, went missing on March 14, 2014, during a hiking trip near Vail, Colorado. His group set out on a nine-mile hike. Their area was covered in deep snow, up to 20 feet snowdrifts, but the trails were heavily used and well-marked. The group stopped to rest, but McGrogan went up ahead. They reached their destination, and he was discovered missing. 
He had on, on him a large pack with food, water, cell phone, including an extra battery, basic medical supplies, a sleeping bag, avalanche beacon, GPS, warm clothing, and a split snowboard. The five-day search failed to find any sign of him despite snow in the area, which would have indicated if someone was hiking or skiing off trail. He would have looked like a snowplow from the air, said Paulettes. On April 3rd, 2015, 20 days later, his body was found by a group of skiers that was about 4.5 air miles or 12 to 14 miles on foot over two steep mountain ranges from where he disappeared. His body was in an ice fall, laying on top of an ice sheet. He was wearing his helmet, no coat, no gloves, and very strangely with no boots. Cell phone was found in his backpack and the area appeared to have adequate cellular reception. Snowboard was also found nearby, but boots were never located. Another case. Lillian was from Marsadis, Maine, which is 15 miles west of the Canadian border and surrounded by lakes, rivers, and ponds. She was six years old. She went missing on August 8, 1897 at noon. Lillian and her parents went blueberry picking. People going missing while picking berries is a theme in these cases. They were there for a short amount of time, and the parents said she just vanished. They searched for an hour. They got some people in the area to help. By the following morning, there were 200 searchers there calling for Lillian. On Tuesday, around 300 residents arrived to search, and at 10 a.m., a guy named Bert Pollen found her somewhere between two and three miles from where her parents last saw her. There wasn't much detail in the article about where they found her. While Lillian didn't say a lot, she made an interesting statement. She said, The sun shined all the time while I was in the woods. Paletti said that was a weird thing for a six-year-old to say. The weather was stated in the news article as being partly cloudy, and she had spent two nights outside that was missing for 46 hours. The sun shined the whole time, huh? Interesting. Another case. George Cater went missing in May 21st, 1950, at 3 p.m. on Mount St. Helen. Carter was a Boeing employee and a National Ski Patrol member of Milwaukee Bowl on weekends. Carter went up with a group of friends to ski down the mountain. Carter said he'd ski down a bit and set up so he would be their cameraman when they come by him. When the group came down the mountain, they didn't see him. They saw where he had stopped, and they found a box where he had taken the film out to load the camera. They didn't find much else except tracks going down the hill. The article said that they described what he had done as a wild, death-defying dash down the mountain which no skier of his caliber would ever do. He had to jump two or three large crevices on the mountain, and they followed his tracks down the mountain, off a cliff, and down into a canyon. They searched for George for three weeks. They should have found something, his camera, skis, poles, or him. They found nothing. They didn't see any other tracks in the snow, nothing unusual or any secondary tracks, just his tracks going down the mountain. Another case, an unarmed or an unnamed 21-month-old boy disappeared in 2011 from a South Carolina residence. Mom left the room momentarily, and somehow the boy and the dog got outside. There was a large open field surrounding the residence before reaching thick woods. Boy and the dog were not only in the yard, they were nowhere in sight, and a search ensued. The following morning, two officers were in kayaks on River River Mile 2 from the victim's residence, Oh, on a river two miles from the victim's residence, a search helicopter was flying above the river looking for a body and had flown over the kayakers. The kayakers found the missing boy alive, lying on his back in the middle of the sandbar. They immediately called the helicopter back to the scene to pick up the boy and take him to his residence. The pilot confirmed that he had just flown over the section of river and the boy was not on the sandbar. Minutes later, he's lying there. Hmm. Interesting. Also... Some fascinating personal accounts, and he gives a link to his source for that. One is mother and son experience the Oz factor, which is incomplete silence, isolation, and feeling of dread while resting off a paved trail in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Son was not feeling well, complained about having a headache, which he later explained as a loud buzzing noise like a big bumblebee in his head. Mother texted her husband that they were stopping to rest for a little while, and it was during his text... She noticed the silence of the forest holding its breath, as she describes it, rested about 10 minutes. She noticed that there's no one using the trail. She starts to experience a feeling of dread and picks her son, picks up her son to finish this short hike back to the car. Arrives at the location, and husband and other son are not there. Seconds later, son comes running down the trail and yells that he found mom and brother. Husband arrives and immediately starts screaming about where the hell they have been there and if they're okay. He says that they've been looking for them for over three hours. Mom calls him a liar and says it was only 10 minutes, but probably felt like hours. He says they had run up and down the trail about three or four times calling their names. Both cell phones 
and clock in their car confirmed that was about three and a half hours had elapsed. And here's a brief story from a hunter who spoke to David Pilates in Bailey, Colorado. He said everything in front of him got blurry, and he put his foot through something like it was going through a glass, and you couldn't see it. So he, he came across something in the woods, and he put his foot in, and his foot disappeared. Interesting. More info. Of all the hundreds of cases meeting Pilates' profile for an unusual disappearance, there have been no documented cases thus far of a person who carried both a firearm and a personal locator beacon. There are virtually no experiences north to south down the central U.S. These are unexplained experiences in which common factors, criminal activity, animal attacks, and mental health implications, voluntary disappearances, have been ruled out. And then, of course, it follows a strange similar pattern. And that's all we got. It's crazy, crazy, crazy weird, guys. And be careful out there in the woods. And send me your mail. This week's uh, guest spot is going to be occupied with the person that I was supposed to put in last week. I want you guys to go over to Life Talks with Edwin Everhart and check out his last episode he uploaded. The guest star is me, and we talk all kinds of crazy stuff. We talk mental health, addiction, trust, survival, finance, um, and you know, being poor, living in poverty, and, and the challenges that are faced that come with those things. And how to follow your bliss and talking about school, all the good stuff. So go over there and check that out. I, I give some real seeds of personal information over there. It's kind of embarrassing, but it's, you know, go check it out. I don't care. So go see Edwin Everhart at Life Talks with Ed and give his show some support and give it a share and maybe subscribe. This week on Inward Survival School of Magic, I've got a treat for you. I was really thinking about like life lessons and what are really, really important things in life that we need to learn. Found an article on lifehack.org. It'll be linked in the show notes. It's 15 life lessons everyone should learn for a good mindset. One, live a life true to yourself. Two, express your emotions. Three, better done than perfect. Four, settle for more. Five, find something that pulls you. Six, go for walks. Seven, happiness comes from solving problems. Eight, develop a growth mindset. Nine, develop selected disciplines into habits, like your workout. I like that one. Ten, be regular and orderly, which means be organized. Eleven, be present. Spend time. 12. Communication is your number one skill. We should always be working on improving that. 13. Combine short-term pessimism and long-term optimism. So we definitely want to look at maybe the negative aspects of a decision we might need to make. Like maybe be a little bit more cautious, but in the long term, stay optimistic, have your goal in mind, and stay positive. But not like unrealistically a positive. 14. Write it down, make it happen. That's I've t- been telling y'all. Write it down. Journal that shit. 15. Read every day. Consume some kind of new knowledge every day. We need to be learning something new every day. Otherwise, things become stagnant. And that's it. That was the 15 things. Our quote for the day, our stoic quote, is by Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher. And he says, Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Have a great week, everybody. And have a happy Halloween. Stay out of trouble. Mm